Hey guys, Trace here. Welcome back to Seeker Plus. Today we're going to rebroadcast episode number 43, which is all about war. We're going to talk about whether humans are prone to violence and the history of war across our planet. We're going to get into war strategy and into tactics, how those have changed over time, and what they might look like in the future. This is a biggie, so let's kick into it. Are humans prone to war? Is this like something that we always do? It's kind of something we've always done. That doesn't mean we have to do it. Let's define what war is, though, because, you know, it gets a little blurry nowadays. According to the Stanford Encyclopedia, quote, War should be understood as an actual, intentional, and widespread armed conflict between political communities. War is a phenomenon which occurs only between political communities defined as those entities which either are states or intend to become states in order to allow for civil war. Okay, let me break that down a little bit. In this definition, they're saying that it's an armed conflict between states and states alone that can be war. Of course, in the modern day, we know that this is not always the case. There's a lot of non-state warfare, but under this definition, it wouldn't be considered war. So another definition that we found was war can be an active conflict that has claimed more than 1,000 lives. That could also be considered war. A thousand lives lost, if that determines war, I mean, that's, there's been a lot more than a thousand lost throughout this century, let alone throughout the entire history of human warfare. I mean, in the 20th century alone, there was at least 108 million killed thanks to warfare. So looking at only military deaths, the United States had 405,000 military deaths. The United Kingdom had 384,000 military deaths. Awful. Germany... 5.1 million military deaths. They did start it, but you know that's still a lot. That's a lot. 5 million. The Soviet Union had 10 million military deaths and between 10 and 20 million civilian deaths related to that. That's even more flabbergasting. And that isn't even all the lives that were lost in World War II. Those are just military deaths. The numbers become staggering when you think about it this way. The estimates for total number killed in wars throughout human history does range, but it's anywhere from 150 million to a billion. It's very difficult to calculate because we didn't have people keeping track throughout all of human history. According to a New York Times article from 2003, in the past 3,400 years, humans have been entirely at peace for about 268 of them. Are we even capable of being at peace? What is that all about? What is peace? You know, to understand war, you have to be able to define it even more specifically and understand what war is. War is technically conflict, right? The Heidelberg Institute for International Conflict Research produces a conflict barometer every year. And there are three elements to their report. Conflict actors, conflict measures, and conflict items. So let's define all of these. Conflict actors are either an individual, a state, an international organization, or a non-state actor. This is the who, right? Conflict measures is the what. Actions and communications carried out by a conflict actor in the context of their conflict. Then there are conflict items, which I'm going to call what they want. That is the material or immaterial goods pursued by the conflict actor via their conflict measure. So who, what, and I guess what, again, but what they want. <laughs> In addition, there's also the concept of conflict intensity, which is the sum of conflict measures in a specific political conflict 
in a specific area for a specific time. So, you know, what's going down, how much, where, and when are these people having conflict? The Heidelberg approach is empirical. It's got actual data behind it. The number of conflict-related deaths is not excluded from the analysis, but it's just one indicator. So saying 1,000 people killed would only measure one bit of the Heidelberg Institute for International Conflict Research conflict barometer. A lot of people just measure war by how many were lost. But the report doesn't just base it on casualties. In 2014, the conflict barometer found the global number of political conflicts increased by 6 to 424 worldwide. 223 of those conflicts were seeing the use of violence, which means not all of them were violent. That's actually a decrease by 6 compared to 2013, by the way, which was right before the rise of ISIS. In 2014, the number of highly violent conflicts decreased by five. It actually went down. Less war. Now it's only about 46. 25 of those are called limited wars under their definition. For example, uh, the violent opposition to the annexation of Crimea, you know, problems in Ukraine. That is a limited war. But then there are full-blown wars. They just call them wars. Uh, And that's like Israel-Palestine, civil war in Libya that escalated in 2014. This is a limited war in Libya. It was a limited war that became a war in that year, which is interesting if you think about it. This whole group, their whole job is they are constantly tracking war and how much of it there is. Wars can escalate, obviously, limited war up to war, but they can also de-escalate from limited war down to violent crisis. But all of this information actually shows that there's less war now than there was in some places. So will we ever stop having war? I mean, are we prone to violence? Are we always going to have war? Is there always going to be more war? Is there more war? No, not really. Deaths from war and murder are actually in decline. In February 2012, Chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff General Martin Dempsey said, quote, Today's world has become more dangerous than it has ever been. But there's little evidence that that is actually true. In March of 2014, the Human Security Report Project took statistics from Steven Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, colon, Why Violence Has Declined, and reported surprising numbers. In the 1950s, there were almost 250 deaths caused by war per million people. Today, less than 10 per million. That's a huge decrease. The report is 127 pages long. We're not going to get into all of it and, you know, spoil all of the statistics now since I'm sure you're going to read it thoroughly. But the trend is that it's going down. And this is looking at it from 10,000 BCE until now. So it's, it's going down. Because war deaths are actually trending down, does that mean that we're getting better at peace? Or does it mean we're getting better at war? We're going to talk a bit about tactics over time because things have gotten better you could say. People use military strategy every day, though. Military strategy is is part of life for some people, not just people in the military. There's a piece of literature that has earned legendary status with some of the people around the world who would say this is a very influential book. You probably know where I'm going with this. One of the most famous books on war, The Art of War by Sun Tzu. It was written 2,500 or so years ago, and it's used as advice for people in the military, but also for people 
in the modern business world. It's a guide for commanders to use to defeat opposing armies, and that has a lot of analogous learnings for people in other fields. The book is required reading for all CIA officers. It's also recommended reading for all U.S. military intelligence personnel, and it comes up as a tool used throughout history, from the KGB to business executives in Japan, Wall Street traders, Silicon Valley CEOs. All these different people have used this ancient military book as a guide for their business, for their warfare, I'm putting in air quotes, and uh, as a guide for life. When Mark Zuckerberg and Snapchat CEO Evan Spiegel first met, Facebook wanted to acquire the instant pick chat company. If you don't know what Snapchat is, you send a picture and that's it. It's like text messages, but just for pictures. Spiegel felt threatened and got the book The Art of War for his team. Snapchat ended up turning down $3 billion from Facebook, and today they're considered one of the most valuable VC-backed tech companies. We're not saying that Sun Tzu, you know, advised Evan Spiegel on Snapchat, but you could say that he was influenced by it, and he did see value in it. Sun Tzu, influential guy. I think this illustrates our point, and that is that war isn't only a political thing. It's not just about killing each other. It's about battles. It's about conflict. You know, it's about religion and territory. It's also about economics. Uh, it's a battle between two sides, and any battle has strategy and tactics. The strategy can be brought in a number of different ways, Sun Tzu being one of them. Tactics is the act of war and getting that out there. These battles will decide the outcome of the war, and the tactics are how that is fought. Besides, you know, getting out there and throwing rocks at each other, there are a lot of classic examples of tactics, and these are very general throughout history. For example, in Roman times, ancient man, you know, ancient history, I guess, Roman tactics were pretty interesting. It was lines and phalanxes. They invented these systems where everything was organized, and they had charges and wheels and spears and shields to help wield their battle like a chessboard. They could change how whole chunks of the Roman army moved with orders filtered down to the men on the front lines. It's a big deal, and it completely changes and revolutionizes warfare in the Mediterranean at the time. Then that is carried through all the way up until the founding of the United States. In the Revolutionary War, we were still using similar tactics, if different technologies. The Revolutionary War saw people still lining up and taking their weapons, pointing them at their enemies, and shooting them. And they would line up with volley upon volley upon volley of just lead bullets flying at each other. They weren't particularly accurate past about 70 yards. So they'd have to stand closer than that so they could shoot at each other. So you're like 50, 60 yards away from your enemy, and you're just shooting at each other, not even a football field away. After the invention of rifling, that changed. But we're not quite there yet because in between the Revolutionary War and the invention of rifling comes the American Civil War. Tactics began to change as the technology improved. By the Civil War, we had rifling, but it was very expensive, so not everyone could get it. And the Civil War was defined by open field fighting, which is kind of sloppy in comparison to the very organized Roman tactics that slowly began to kind of change throughout the inventions of all these new technologies into the Revolutionary War and there was a lot of casualties in the Civil War, a lot of bloodshed in the Civil War, and it still was people lining up, establishing a front, pointing their guns at each other, and shooting. At the end of the day, that was still how wars were fought 
up until 150 years ago. And what they learned from that was technology swings battle. For example, the bayonet that they were using throughout the history of the American wars was shaped like a triangle because if you stab someone with a triangular-shaped bayonet and you twist it, the wound can't be easily closed. That's technology that made warfare, quote-unquote, better. That doesn't exist today because we outlawed it, but having that technology made your side better. In 1860, northern states were producing 97% of the firearms in the United States. The South didn't have access to as much technology and didn't do quite as well. Some major problems, of course, emerged you know, in, during the Civil War with these old-school tactics with this new-school technology. There were so many units around. There were just so many people that it made it difficult to communicate their tactics effectively. Communication would break down. Uh, The Battle of Chickamauga is a great example. Both commanders were busy moving these huge brigades across a field. Again, think of it like chess. They were trying to position themselves in the right place to attack the enemy, and ultimately they ended up creating all these gaps instead. There were no real formations, and that led to bloodshed. Now, at this point, we start to kind of revise these tactics. The Roman tactics were new, and they were slowly changing throughout those few hundred years. And now we've got Napoleonic tactics. Things start to change where a faster skirmishing system was beginning to be used. People would use smaller groups of men, and they were firing rifled muskets. So they weren't firing volleys at each other necessarily. With a rifled musket, you have to aim and shoot at a target because your volley isn't going to be as helpful. You want to aim and shoot something. Then that pairs down even further. It's faster, it's smaller, and now we've got guerrilla warfare, which comes into play in more modern war, which is defined by irregular, fast-moving, small-scale actions against the people still using that line-up-and-shoot warfare, right? That was a whole different style, a whole different tactic. And yes, these overlap with each other, but... That's the problem with how tactics work. You have to change together or you have better technology, you have better information, and you can change how warfare works for you. So learning from open field fighting and learning from guerrilla warfare, they're finding that technology and industry wins, making these novel tactics. And lacking money and weapons, guerrilla warfare is beneficial. You need fewer people to commit guerrilla warfare than you do to commit Roman warfare, right? Tactics over the last few hundred years have evolved alongside weapons evolving. Things are getting faster. Things are getting more lightweight. You don't necessarily need to do the same tactics that you used to. Guerrilla warfare sort of sounds like terrorism, but the difference is that terrorism is mostly used to scare civilians, whereas guerrilla warfare is used to frustrate, exhaust, or beat your opponent in conflict. But it requires fewer and fewer and fewer people. I mean, terrorism can be perpetrated by an individual. That's warfare on a whole other level from, again, take it from Roman where it's thousands. Today, the tactics of state-to-state war are simple and more like civil war in a big way, but they mirror this paring down as things get more advanced. Lines and trenches and secured positions are still fairly common. You know, you want to build something when you get to a secure location. And guerrilla and terrorism tactics don't really go with that but they're used to attack them. Sound familiar? It's been done throughout history. Most modern warfare gets its inspiration from World War II. They wanted the complete domination of air, water, and land. 
on ground. You have infantry used for all sorts of war throughout all of history. Eventually, we get cavalry, which is faster, it could hit harder, a better strategic position, and use fewer people. Then you get mechanized infantry or tanks. Those come about in World War I, and that opened the door for mechanized warfare and, again, requires fewer people because of more technology. In World War II, blitzkrieg tactics could focus on the weak point in an enemy and then encircle them with tanks. Rather than just have a row of tanks like men guarding an area, they could change their tactics based on their technology. Sound familiar? You know, lots of men, some men, a few men. For hundreds of years, naval powers could change state-to-state warfare, but eventually it became less about that. Submarines made naval battles three-dimensional instead of just being on the surface of the water. Now it was below the water as well, a whole other kind of battle. And actually, if you think about it, it's run-and-hide battle more akin to guerrilla warfare. There was air domination, which was very powerful and pivotal for World War II. Whole battles were fought in the skies, and bombers were able to pummel land targets across whole fields of battle. Again, technology making fewer people be able to influence more of the battlefield. Drones are now completely changing how we think of air superiority. In modern warfare, we're advancing daily. Everything is unmanned in some cases. Think about it this way. A bomb, like a nuclear warfare, that's a lot of impact, small expense in terms of manpower. And this is why warfare is dangerous and it's constantly evolving and it's constantly changing. Intelligence plays a big role today. Drone technology plays a big role. We're in the middle of this paring down now. We've got these new tactics coming about all the time. We're still trying to figure out how to fight wars the way we do now. And we're trying to move as fast as our weapons, but our weapons are actually moving a little faster. Why do we love war? Humans love telling stories. War is one of the stories we tell a lot. We love watching it on the big screen, reading stories about it, reenacting it, collecting war memorabilia. All of those things are extremely popular. In 2015, one of those Keep Calm and Carry On posters, an original from 1939, sold at auction for $17,600. That was a poster for the British people during World War II. A Nazi Enigma machine sold at auction for $365,000. Out of the 1,500 M4 Nazi Enigma machines built during World War II, only 150 are left. And an authentic Vickers Supermarine Spitfire Mark I dogfighter plane sold at auction for $4.8 million. War memorabilia. It sells. It's a big market. That was in 2015 alone. Collecting war memorabilia is a huge industry, but it's not just owning a piece of the war. It's also talking about it and going to visit it and, in some cases, reenacting it. I used to work at a living history museum myself in Michigan. During the 150th anniversary of the Civil War, It was estimated that tourism brought $2.7 billion to the Gettysburg area alone. That's huge. But why do people reenact war? Why do we like to tell these stories? I mean, one, they're very compelling. It's stories of heroism and brother against brother in case of the Civil War. And in World War II, it's about America saving the day. And in the case of the Civil War, some people are disappointed about how it's represented at school or in the media, so they may go out and reenact it. Or they just want to be more involved and understand their history better. Maybe they have an ancestor who fought in a battle. 
And so they become living historians. They become reenactors. And the Civil War is very well documented, so it's easy to accurately recreate it. There are even photos, for the first time, photos of battlefields, of people marching around and fighting. I used to, again, work at a living history museum, and we reenacted, sort of, we, we interpreted the 1880s, which was actually a peacetime for Michigan, although there were Native American wars being fought all throughout the American West. It was a really interesting piece of history. I really like it. You could probably find pictures of me on the internet doing that, but whatever. The United States isn't the only one who loves talking about their own history and their own battles. Every country has reenactment groups dedicated to every war. Countries like... Germany and England and Russia have actually been known to reenact the U.S. Civil War, which is pretty cool. And even if we're not out there reenacting it on the battlefield ourselves, we're talking about it in our living rooms, in our books, and in movies. On top of that, we're not just going to see war movies, both non-fictional and fictional, because there are some movies that are completely made up and just based on it, like Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards comes to mind. There are also video games about fighting wars. On top of all this, we are still telling the stories of war in our culture. We carry it forward. You know, I always think it's funny when people say, I don't drink my coffee with sugar and milk because it reminds me of World War II and rationing because that's when it was like, men don't do that because we need to send the sugar and milk to our soldiers, right? We're still carrying things forward like that all across the world. But we've also got things like fashion. Khaki, as a color, as a type of clothing, comes from India in the British Army. Harry Lumsden, the commanding officer in the Bengal cavalry of the British Indian Army, thought that the red coats that the British Army was wearing, very bright red, not great for fighting in India. I've worn them. They're very heavy and hot. And so he took the socks, the pajamas, the cotton jackets, and then he dyed them in a plant called Mazari. Turned everything a dull brownish gray. Today we call that khaki. It's great for fighting in a hot environment. There's also neckties come from the military originally. When Croatian mercenaries went to Paris during the 30-year war, 1618 to the mid-1600s, they wore tight, bright scarves around their necks. And they thought that would mask some of their movements. And the French looked at that and they thought it was kind of fashionable and they adopted it and eventually it evolved into the modern necktie. Still wear them today. The French also influenced American military uniforms because throughout history, the best militaries in the world are the ones that all the other militaries, they want to emulate. They want to look like them. They want to dress like whatever they're wearing, right? Obviously, in the American Revolutionary War, we were mostly just wearing repurposed British uniforms. We would dye them blue, but they were basically the same thing. Then the French military became super powerful because they defeated somebody and they were the best military in the world and everybody started copying their uniforms. And that's when you get things like the kepi. The kepi was a little hat that had kind of a stovepipe look to the top of it and a little brim to keep the sun out of your eyes. The kepi eventually became a hat worn by American military members in the Civil War. Kind of slouches over to the side, though. The French would wear it popped up. Today, the infantry still wears a brimmed cap that is a little taller than you'd think. And that comes from the kepi, which comes from the French. And of course, that same style is emulated in what today we call baseball caps. Because baseball was part of military life into the 1800s. 
Marching band uniforms also pull from military tradition. All of that striping and all of that finery across the chest in the military eventually was simplified into just stripes that musicians would wear in the military, and old musicians' uniforms were sold to schools, and they turned into marching bands. They also have tuxes. The tuxedo has a stripe down the outside of the leg. A lot of fancy pants do, literal fancy pants. The thinner the stripe, the higher rank officer you were in the military, and that has held into modern fashion today. So interesting. Aviators, combat boots, bomber jackets, trench coats, cardigans, pea coats, cargo pants, Ray-Bans, Doc Martens, and even plain white cotton t-shirts all have histories in the military. Why do we love war? We love war because it's our history, it's dramatic, it's human, it's entertaining, it's well-documented, it's also incredibly innovative, which inspires people, and it's cool sometimes. There are also times, though, when it is not cool. There are some long-term effects of war. There are things that happen to people during war that they will never get over. But there are also things that happen to war that change our society as a whole. War affects people on and off the battlefield. It will affect the physical as well as the emotional and the psychological. Long-term health problems for soldiers following wars is not a new thing. I mean, we hear a lot about it now, but it's been something that's been going on forever. We actually noticed and really began documenting it early on in the last century. In the First World War, they started saying something called shell shock was affecting soldiers. It was a syndrome originally believed to have a physical origin. It was caused by reaction to loud shelling, and they kind of never recovered from that. The belief changed once they realized that soldiers who had never been around loud shelling also developed similar symptoms. Since it's a, they then realized it's a psychological syndrome, they didn't really know what to do. There was very little sympathy for people who were shell-shocked, both during the battle and also later, and once they got home. They didn't really know what to do with these shell-shocked soldiers. People had never really talked about it before. During World War II, they started testing recruits prior to going to war to see if they were susceptible to shell shock. They tested a recruit to determine their ability to handle stressful situations. They wanted to see if they would be a viable recruit. According to sciencemuseum.org, a number of men and women were actually discharged from the armed forces in World War II after they were considered to be unsuitable for the military on these grounds. A lot of soldiers experienced high levels of stress in battle. I mean, it's kind of part of battle is stress. And they ended up calling this high level of stress condition battle fatigue. And a soldier found with that condition was then removed from battle and they were sent somewhere to rest behind the lines. And obviously every person has a limit to the amount of stress that they can endure. And a lot of people hit that limit in World War II. And today we have a name for it, post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD. But that didn't come around for a while after World War II. Even soldiers who went to Korea, to Vietnam, they were still unsure what was going on with these people and these psychologically affected men and women until in the 1980s, the American Psychiatric Association added PTSD to the third edition of the DSM, the Diagnostics and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So DSM-3, today we're at the DSM-5, so they've really made some revisions. But it was pretty controversial when it was first introduced. The DSM is the standard manual for all mental health practitioners as to how to code or organize all of these different mental health disorders. There's obviously a lot of controversy around it, but it is the standard manual. 
And people were worried that medicalizing this shell shock disorder would cause people to be dependent and you'd label it as a disease and nobody then knew what to do with it. Similar debates have raged often throughout the history of mental health in our communities. It's, is addiction an affliction? Is it a disorder? Is it a disease? Or is it just a personal weakness? Depression, is that a disorder or a disease? A personal weakness. Obesity, a disorder or a disease? These are debates that are constantly going on, and one of them was PTSD. The addition of PTSD to the DSM filled a very important gap in psychiatric theory and practice, and it was one of the first diagnoses to move the causal factor outside of the individual. They weren't being caused by something going on here. They weren't weak. It wasn't their own problem. It was this trauma that was going on around them. The neurobiology of PTSD is really telling. It's very interesting. So many things are happening in the brain and elsewhere in the body, and Research shows that PTSD may be associated with neurobiological alterations in both the central and autonomic nervous systems. The central nervous system is the one you think of when you think of the nervous system. It's the brain and all of this. The autonomic nervous system are things that you don't control consciously. Psychophysiological changes also occur in the people who have PTSD. For example, the sympathetic nervous system, which is you know, how you breathe and things that keep your heart beating, can be hyper-aroused in people with PTSD. You're not controlling that. That's not you. That's your body. Increased sensitivity and augmentation of the acoustic startle eye blink reflex is aroused in PTSD, which means that you startle more easily and you'll blink more easily when startled. There are sleep abnormalities associated with PTSD. Everyone knows that that's not something you're consciously controlling. Functional brain imaging in modern day suggests there's Excessive amygdala activity in people with PTSD. The amygdala is the fear center of the brain. It controls a lot of our emotions. And there is also reduced activation of the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus. The prefrontal cortex is executive function. It's how we make our decisions. And the hippocampus is memory functioning. So people with PTSD can have all sorts of problems with emotions, with decision-making, with memory. And all of those things seem to fit with shell shock, if you think back, you know. Lots of things are happening inside the body, but it's important to understand what triggers this as well. To understand PTSD, you have to understand the concept of trauma. According to the DSM-3, which again has been revised since, a traumatic event is a catastrophic stressor that is outside the range of usual human experience. War would definitely fit into that, but so would a lot of other things, you know? Torture and rape the atomic bomb going off near your hometown, in your hometown. Natural disasters also fit there. Earthquakes, hurricanes, volcanic eruptions, and also more emotional things. Human-made disasters, factory explosions, airplane crashes, automobile accidents. I mean, even just losing a partner, losing somebody, that can be a traumatic event that you never recover from. You can have PTSD from that. It's very interesting, and it can happen to so many people. Everyone has stressors in their lives. And to diagnose PTSD assumes that most individuals can cope with ordinary stress. And the traumatic stressors overwhelm our capacity to handle that stress, and thus we get post-traumatic stress disorder. We don't want to just focus on people in war, of course, even though this is our week on war. Civilians can have PTSD too, and they can be affected by war even when they're not directly involved. There's collateral damage where people are literally hurt or killed. But There's also civilian populations who have to deal with the fallout, the destroyed infrastructure, leftover mines and bombs that still exist all over the world from various conflicts. 
and long-term health effects. People living outside of Hiroshima and Nagasaki had problems with radiation sickness, physical injuries, specific medical problems that maybe were associated with it, but they didn't always know. Medical facilities and infrastructure were so damaged that people may have had to resort to things that could have caused trauma. And on top of all that, it's not just the adults out there, you know, fighting or protecting their homes or, you know, searching for food. It also can be children. One study looked at the long-term effects of war experiences on children's depression in the Republic of Croatia. They studied almost 600 children aged between only 12 and 15 years, so only a three-year span, and they found that 283 of those children were displaced from different parts of Croatia for a period of approximately three and a half years, and those children with more war experiences had more depressive symptoms in boys specifically. It's just one study, but it shows that you don't necessarily have to fight in a war in order to be affected by it. PTSD can affect soldiers, can affect people, it can affect civilians all across all of our communities. And I want to end on this section with a personal anecdote. I've been reading this book recently, so it's personal as in I'm doing this now. Um, James Bond, Ian Fleming, the book is You Only Live Twice. And in this, it's post-Casino Royale. Spoiler alert, his lady gets killed at the end of Casino Royale, the movie, also in the book. Not good. Um, And James Bond is being described by M to a neurologist with the symptoms of PTSD. They're saying he can't focus. He doesn't have great memory of what he's been doing lately. He doesn't show up on time. He's inattentive. He's failing at work, and he doesn't have an emotional response to anything anymore. Sounds a lot like PTSD, but they didn't have language when that book was written to describe what it was. And instead, the neurologist in the book says, oh, just send him out on a very important mission and he'll perk right up. Because people didn't understand how to deal with people who'd been through these traumas. But no one's going to think James Bond is a weak guy. They talk about it in the book. They're like, no, he's a strong man. He should be able to handle it. And that's the problem is... Without an understanding of what's going on, we don't really have a language to describe it. If you think you might know someone with PTSD, there are resources available, by the way. PTSD.va.gov is the Veterans Affairs Administration. They have great resources if you want some information further than this podcast. And there's also the National Center for PTSD. That's part of the VA as well. Computer warfare. This is like the newest, the most cutting-edge warfare. Some of the most famous computer warfare is Stuxnet, and it's made a lot of headlines. It was a computer worm which became famous around 2010. It primarily spreads through USB sticks or USB keys, so it's not necessarily on the internet, although it could be spread that way. So you plug in this USB stick to a computer not connected to the internet, and it would spread locally across that closed network. The worm only does one thing. It looks for a particular model of a programmable logic controller, a PLC, basically a control chip for huge machinery, industrial machinery. The PLC it's looking for is usually responsible for controlling machinery in specific places like factories, power plants, centrifuges. It's most famous for attacking a nuclear power plant in Iran. And it's believed that it was designed and released for a while mysteriously, but Edward Snowden says it was the United States and Israel, they think. Although there are also clues that the U.S., did it. Which is really interesting. 
because this would be one of the first examples, concrete examples, of a government attacking another government through a computer virus that we have. Digital warfare is kind of insane to think about. You know, when you think back to the tactics section of our episode this week, we're thinking about it as like lots of people, slightly fewer people, and then only a handful or one. That's pretty much digital warfare, right? This is war where I can take one person or a few people in a few computers and infect whole countries, whole planets, <laughs> if we're going that way. Two security breaches in the U.S. Office of Personal Management were in the headlines pretty recently uh, because of breaches that compromise data. Now, just saying compromised data, what does that mean? It means that every person who's ever had a government background check in the last 15 years was leaked to someone who hacked in and took it. That's likely all government employees that were hired in that time. OPM, uh, the Office of Personnel Management, is like the HR department for the federal government. They're the ones who do all of that information. That's 21.5 million people who may have had their information accessed. That includes social security numbers, fingerprints. That's really personal stuff. And they think because of how it was accessed and what was accessed, security experts say that the attack most likely came from China. Potentially China trying to find out who works for the government here in the U.S., right? The Justice Department indicted five members of Unit 61398, a hacking unit of the Chinese People's Liberation Army, accusing them of stealing data from American firms which would benefit state-owned companies. After the accusations, we saw a temporary pause in corporate hacking coming out of China. They know it's coming out of China because data backbones from China to the United States are monitored by all sorts of different groups. So you can see the data that's going anywhere. Nobody on the internet is truly anonymous. It's all traceable. But according to the Washington Post, it led the CIA to pull spies out of China in 2015 because there was fear that the hackers might have used this background data, fingerprint data, social security data to identify CIA agents. This is crazy. We should totally do like a spy episode. So neat. In another example, Pentagon officials have said blueprints and secret technology for the F-35 fighter jet might have been taken by a Chinese military group called the Technical Reconnaissance Bureau. And then that was used in Chinese stealth jets called the J-20 and J-31. The F-35 is super expensive. It's cost $400 billion to build over the past two decades, and they don't actually have any F-35s really out there. And China just hacked in and took it, used the information. You're welcome, China. Representative Mike Rogers, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, said, quote, the viciousness and volume of attacks not only by the Chinese but Russians and others trying to get the blueprints of our most sensitive material is just breathtaking, and they're getting better. That's scary. But China, of course, has consistently denied that they are hacking anybody. They're saying things like the government does not sponsor any form of hacking. They're saying that uh, Chinese laws prohibit cyber crimes of all forms. That's according to a Chinese embassy spokesman. And, of course, the Chinese government firmly opposes any forms of hacking, the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesperson Hong Lei said. And, of course, the Chinese military has never supported any hacker attack or hacking activities, says the People's Liberation Army. But even though they're saying all these things publicly, they can kind of tell where these hacks are coming from. Because cyber warfare 
isn't like the battles of years past. I don't have to march an army out in front of everybody. All I got to do is push a few buttons on a keyboard. In 2015, it became more apparent that China might be hacking <laughs> because China's Academy of Military Sciences, it's their top research institute, published the Science of Military Strategy. And it reveals that China splits its hacking groups into three categories. They have so many hacking groups, they got to split them up. They split them into operational military units, teams with civilian organizations that have been given authorization to hack, and external entities, I'm finger quoting, which are like mercenaries, government contractors, and such. This is the first time ever that China has acknowledged that hackers exist for things other than defense. They're trying to go out and get information. But to be fair, China Daily, a media company, reports that a third of all attacks against the Chinese originated in the United States. So they might be hacking us, but apparently we're hacking back, according to China Daily. When asked why, the United States doesn't respond any better than the Chinese government does. They say the director of national intelligence, James Clapper, says it's because the U.S. engages in the same type of espionage and we're not bad at it. He says, but Obama and Xi Jinping agreed during a meeting in 2015 that they weren't going to conduct cyber theft of trade secrets. They weren't going to take intellectual property and do that for commercial gain. But whether or not that's going to be respected by intelligence agencies and military agencies, that's a whole different thing. Who knows where cyber war is going to go? This is just the beginning. Computers have not been around long enough. The internet has not been around long enough to be able to hack into all these databases and have such wide-sweeping gains militarily as it has been in the last decade or two. War has affected us and our society for as long as we've had society. Yes, it's changed. You know, we're not marching around on battlefields. We're not shooting bows and arrows at each other anymore unless you're in the Avengers. We're not doing any number of the things that we used to do, but we're still essentially throwing rocks at each other and trying to get the other country or the other person to break, right? Cyber warfare is technological rocks, but they're rocks nonetheless. Or maybe you're trying to steal their rocks. I don't know if this metaphor is working. But either way, we love war, we hate war, and we are all affected by war. Thanks so much, y'all, for hanging out with me here on Seeker Plus. I really hope you loved this episode. If you did, please leave us a rating, share this podcast with your friends, and if you have comments, come find us on Twitter at Seeker. You can find me out there too at Trace Dominguez. Make sure you come find us in all our other shows on YouTube and Facebook as well. I'm Trace. Thanks for listening.